Hey everyone, Eric Torenberg here. We just launched a new show, The Leader Series Podcast, with General Assembly co-founder and thesis-driven editor, Brad Hargreaves. Thesis Driven is the top newsletter publication for real estate change makers, and the first season of the podcast builds on top of that, with 12 interviews with the leading voices at the intersection of real estate, cities, innovation, and technology. We'll cover how technology is going to shape real estate investing over the coming years, what new sectors and consumer preferences changes mean for real estate development, and how entrepreneurs might be able to play to these trends. The first episode is out now. Search Thesis Driven on any podcast app today or visit the link in the description. Welcome to The Riff, where writer and investor Bern Hobart and I discuss the major inflection points caused by technological change. Our weekly conversation covers the obvious and not so obvious ways in which markets and businesses will adapt as a result. Let's jump right in. Hey, hey, Bern, how's it going? Pretty good. How are you? Doing pretty good. Um, I, should we get into Figma and Adobe uh, now? The only reason not to be would be if, if there's anything big that's going to come out next week that would require us to wait. Yeah, I think uh, usually corporate drama like this, it is just kind of, um, I guess it's it, it's the kind of drama where it's like a, a breakup where something just slowly dies, not, uh, not you know, the big conflagration. Like, it just seemed like it took, took longer and longer for the deal to close and it was looking less and less likely. And, you know, you need more and more um, competition, regulatory authorities to sign off on it. And it just became clear after a while, it was probably not going to happen or not going to happen in a form where the deal still made sense, which is really too bad. Um, like thinking back, I, I went back and looked at some of the coverage of the Figma deal right when it was announced. And one of the things that occurred to me was just um, we kind of needed it. Like we, this was um, about six months into the the downturn. You know, depending on exactly how you track it, you could say the downturn started right at the beginning of 2022. Just um, one of those things where everyone coming into the new year sort of reset expectations, decided growth was a little uh, little overdone, inflation was maybe more worth worrying about than they thought, and then um, to the extent that there was still some optimism. Um, in the in the tech world, the Ukraine invasion got rid of a lot of that. Like people just got you know started thinking about how there is a there's a whole real world out there, and there are all of these bad things that could happen, and um, and that maybe there's there's more excitement in um, in industries like oil and fertilizer and firearms rather than in uh, in stuff like new you know new fintech, new SaaS, etc. And then. Um, in September of 2022, there's this massive deal where a huge tech company gives a very nice exit opportunity to a really hyped growth startup that was probably, you know, would almost certainly not have been able to raise it anything remotely like that valuation that they tried to raise. So, like, I think it helped that deal helped restore a lot of the optimism to to the tech space, and I think probably had a, a reasonable impact. If you so, if you think about companies operating on annual cycles where, you know, they set their new cycle in 2022. And, you know, over the course of that year, they've done too much hiring relative to attrition because attrition has been tracking way below plan and so on. So like their 2023 could have been a pretty bad year for tech hiring, a pretty bad year for investment. But if you have deals like that, it does indicate, yeah, there's still, there's still a reason to back founders who have a big idea and a really good product and we're going after some huge market. So yeah, it was kind of um, 
I guess in that sense, maybe we just need to deal less. Like stocks are close to all-time highs. Um, engineers can get jobs. Um, companies are getting funded. So maybe things are you know, sufficiently back to normal that a company like Figma, it's it's okay that they didn't get the, the best conceivable outcome. But I'm sure it's a huge bummer to everyone involved. Do you think it was the right outcome from a antitrust perspective? You know, uh, some people saying, oh, duopoly merging into a monopoly, like this DOJ was set up to do. Like, how do you think about that? You know, I was thinking about this because I, I wanted to have a really firm opinion. But what I realized was I, I have an increasing amount of sympathy for people who are doing antitrust in tech right now. Because on the one hand, they there are these massive companies that always have really long-term plans. They're always expanding in a lot of different directions. And they're clearly very strategically smart. And you can look back at deals like, hey, Google got Android. That turned out to be pretty important. Hey, Facebook got WhatsApp and Instagram. Turns out that'll matter a lot. Um, maybe Oculus will actually matter even more, depending on how, how the metaverse goes. But like, you can look back and say there are all these deals where knowing what we know now, the deal probably shouldn't have gone through. Like there should have been an independent WhatsApp, an independent Instagram, and Facebook should have just been the big blue app. Um, you know, we were a lot worse for them. Like they they wouldn't necessarily be growing now, although you never know what they would have done to Instagram if they hadn't been able to buy it. But yeah, it's so at that level, you could say probably more deals got done than antitrust people would normally want to get done. Like our baseline level of competition is lower than it otherwise would have been because of this very clever MA from the big tech companies. On the other hand, you have to ask, like, why why does a company like Instagram get funding in the first place? And one reason is, of course, it was a really good product and people loved it. And, um, you know, it was a very capital efficient company, did not have a lot of employees and was able to grow really fast, et cetera. But one piece of everyone's calculation has to be that this company is valuable in part because of what it can do to a big, big strategic acquirer if they don't acquire it. So... Like Instagram, we actually have a, a pretty good proxy for that because they raised at a half billion dollar valuation and then got acquired for a billion dollars 10 days later. So one of the best IRRs in venture of all time. But it was also a good measure of just, here's what Instagram is worth on its own, even with a merger premium. And then here's what it's worth to Facebook not to have to worry about an independent Instagram. So in a sense, these deals end up being a subsidy for exactly the kind of competition that um, that we're trying to preserve. Um, there, there have been interesting case studies of this. Like there was a period in the late 19th century when Western Union was growing really fast and um, entrepreneurs realized that you could actually mug Western Union. You just, you find a city that they're not connected to, you build a connection and then you sell it for three times your cost. Or you find a city Western Union is hooked up to, you build your own parallel telegraph line, you start undercutting them. And of course, you have a weaker network, but on that particular area, you actually have really competitive pricing and they pay you to go away. And um, what eventually happens is that there is some level of market discipline for these companies where they end up, they can't, if they acquire all of their problems, they are actually creating a huge subsidy for people to just start problems for them. So um, eventually the companies actually have to have some kind of network effect they can take advantage of or develop some kind of cost advantage. So it does end up, having this sort of net pro-consumer thing if you just leave it open to the market. Where that gets really tough is if you have high capital requirements and the capital requirements keep on going up. So it becomes harder and harder for someone to just casually put together a little business that competes with this big company. But even in cases like that, you do end up with companies that are elsewhere in the supply chain starting to cause competition. Um, so I think Google Fiber is a really good example of this where the US just wasn't getting 
really great broadband for our money, both um, in terms of what people, what individuals and businesses were paying for, but also in terms of the amount of subsidies that broadband connectivity got. But um, Google did realize that by creating really fast, very affordable connections in a handful of places, they could basically force a CapEx cycle on the rest of the industry and force everyone else to upgrade their infrastructure. So in my view, Google got a really good return on Google Fiber by doing it in a couple of places. Um, I actually use Google Fiber. It's great. But um, I don't like on a standalone basis, not Google's best investment. But in terms of what it did to the rest of the uh, the rest of the telecom space, it was actually probably a pretty good deal. The counterfactuals are hard. But, you know, to rely on that, you are basically saying that um, you're going to rely less on the FTC and more on the fact that we have a bunch of ruthless monopolists, but none of them have quite gotten a comprehensive monopoly. And so eventually they they um, they kind of get uh, they exercise their ruthlessness by weakening somebody else's monopoly. And, you know, that's that's a kind of weird equilibrium, but it is it is an equilibrium that's worked pretty well. So I I would lean towards. Yeah, let them let them do that. Like if. If what actually happened was Figma became a threat to Adobe, and so Adobe bought them, and now Adobe is going to raise the price and stop launching new features in Figma, and it's going to suck for everyone, well, that does also mean that um, there's $20 billion to the next person who builds Figma, but even better, and uh, decides to to hold out and not sell for even longer and cause even more problems for Adobe. Yeah, it will put. Is it, is it fair to summarize something along the lines of, you know, antitrust used to be about you know, uh, avoiding monopolies where consumers were obviously hurt because there was price fixing or, or some other sort of obvious, um, you know, uh, sort of punishment to the consumer. But now they're more focused on preserving kind of broad-based competition, i.e. letting startups compete, even if it's at the, um, even if it has nothing to obviously do with the, with the consumer. Like that, that is, that is definitely Lena Khan's theory. And she's, she's pushed that there's, it is kind of weird because, it does mean, I guess you you have to think about uncertainty and timescales. And if you if you say there's a wide range of uncertainty, but that the big companies probably have very coherent plans and they expect to get good returns on their money, then you can say that probably, yeah, size alone, market power alone, even if it's not being exploited, does eventually become a problem. By the time it's a problem, it's really hard to undo what's happened and really hard to fix it. So something like AWS is certainly not a monopoly. Like they are, they have very direct competitors for a lot of their products, but um, they have been able to arrange pricing in such a way that it's it's very expensive to leave. It's a lot cheaper to keep your data on AWS, and um, that has created you know it's it's a less competitive market than it otherwise would have been because of these decisions. But early on, when Amazon was setting its pricing, A, the, the price to move data off AWS was not that high. It's just they've cut prices for basically everything else and kept that price pretty high. And B, it just it didn't look like that critical a business. Like, hey, you can you can rent servers from a bookstore. You know, what do they think of next? Um, it just didn't seem like that big a deal. So um, it was kind of reasonable that no, no antitrust people took a close look at it. But if you if you do buy the idea that size alone becomes a problem. But you also recognize that companies get big because they have advantages. And often companies that get big and continue to grow, they have advantages because of their scale. So someone like Amazon, they can afford a more comprehensive network of distribution centers. They can they can have less inventory on hand and still be able to mostly guarantee next day and same day delivery for a huge range of products just because they're they're so big. They know with high confidence they will sell 
X number of units of whatever it is over some known time period so they can they can stock less of it and still offer it fast, et cetera. Like if you if you go after companies on size alone, but those companies actually have size advantages and they're not exploiting the con- the consumer, then you're actually doing a directly consumer harmful antitrust policy, at least in a first order sense. So if a smaller version of Amazon would be less price competitive and Amazon right now is passing a lot of savings on to consumers, then by breaking Amazon up, you are creating a smaller, a set of smaller and less efficient and therefore more expensive and slower shipping Amazons. And you might say that that is actually a worthwhile trade. Like we would rather live in a slightly poorer country that has fewer giant corporations. But um, if you do, you do need to think about that trade-off. Now, again, over longer periods, maybe it is the case that every every big company that has good economies of scale at some point will start exploiting them as much as possible. But in practice, um, it's it's really hard to say. And in fact, just the the econometric questions around how much is Amazon actually exploiting its position those become hard too. So um, there, you know, Amazon is in trouble right now for charging lots of money to run ads on Amazon, you know, ads within Amazon, and then um, making it basically impossible to sell products if you're not running ads. Those ads are auction-based, so you're giving up arbitrarily large shares of your gross profit to Amazon, and your, your competitors are all bidding against you for your keywords. And um, Amazon also enforces price parity across different sites. So you can't have, you know, if you're on Amazon, you're selling something for $20, and you have to spend $8 on ads to sell that $20 product. So in theory, your your cost is $8 lower on your own website. So if you sold it for, say, $15 on your own website, you would have a better deal for customers and you'd also um, be making more money. But Amazon won't really let you do that. And um, people have, have really have argued that this is Amazon exploiting its market position. But the comparison people are making is... If you had the customer on Amazon and you also had the customer on your website, you could charge less on your website and sell the same product and you'd get the business and you'd be fine. But Amazon's whole value prop to retailers is we have the customer and we have a growing share of the customer and we we have given the customer this instinctive habit of just automatically opening, like you hear about a product you want to buy, you automatically open Amazon, you smash the buy button on the first result when you search for that product. And you buy it. And um, it's not actually clear to me that people have a lower sales and marketing cost for getting an incremental customer off Amazon than on Amazon. Amazon's just a really efficient tool for driving demand, and they definitely charge for it. But Google's also a really efficient tool for driving demand. Google also charges for traffic, and you're not going to get any incremental traffic unless you do something extra that almost certainly has some kind of cost. So um, it, it becomes a really challenging question to even ask are these companies exploiting things? Because you can always, take this very narrow slice of the transaction and say, yes, they're definitely exploiting things, but that's true for, for anything. Um, it's it's certainly true for any other business where there's a high mar- high uh, fixed cost and then relatively low marginal costs. Like people talk about this with telecoms all the time of like, it just doesn't cost that much money to move one bit over a wire. So why are they charging this, um, you know, 100x markup on their marginal cost for delivering connectivity? And the answer is they actually had to make an upfront investment and they have to amortize that investment over over their future revenue. So the incremental margin just doesn't tell you very much. And incremental incremental margins are just going to get harder and harder to parse as the economy gets more complex and as more of it gets digitally mediated. Yeah. If if Lisa Khan came up to you and said, hey Burn, whatever you tell me to do, I will do. Or if you in fact were were her, is there anything else you would uh you would do differently or you would be uh, thinking about as you think about what's the ideal sort of framework here? 
That's a really good question. I think if I'm if I'm in her position, I would look at cases where new entrants into the market have problems. And I would look at where it's getting easier and harder for new entrants to show up. I would also look at um, standards and at de facto standards. So things like file formats and interoperability. I think that that actually makes it a lot harder for someone to get this unbeatable lead. If if you know anyone can produce a Microsoft Excel file, then anyone can create an Excel vendor. And maybe it's a subset of functions, maybe it's a superset of functions. But if anyone can do it, then it's a lot harder for Microsoft to maintain their monopoly. And actually, Excel is a pretty good example. Like there are good libraries out there for producing Excel files that are well formatted that Excel can read perfectly nicely. Um, they they do exist. And for businesses where the end consumer wants to get things in Excel and um, the the underlying data is not initially delivered in Excel, those are those are a lifesaver. But they actually they actually end up reinforcing Excel's utility as just the default tool for opening certain kinds of files and for manipulating certain kinds of data, because now it's a lot easier for everyone to produce Excel outputs, whether or not they themselves use Excel. So like, I'm sure there are, I'm sure there's someone out there who makes their living producing Excel files, does not have an Excel license, will never have an Excel license. They're just producing the files and um, that's, that's what they do. And that makes Excel even more dominant. So I think I, I think that is um it's like an important component that you don't want companies just exploiting the fact that they have proprietary formats to get away with things, but you also want to acknowledge that sometimes the underlying product is actually pretty good and it's redundant for there to be two different formats that are not fully compatible and have different features. Uh, I think the other thing is just um I think she should just um seriously think about what the actual point of antitrust is. Like there's there is the model where you're just you're going after size, you're going after big, powerful companies and trying to um, cut them down to size. But if you are the federal government, then you're always a much larger, much more powerful entity beating up a smaller entity. Like Amazon is not a small company compared to most companies, but it's a small entity in the world compared to the federal government. Like Amazon doesn't have aircraft carriers. Amazon can't cut someone off the financial system, et cetera. So um, it is sort of like uh, you... Like the antitrust model that is not consumer welfare maximizing is just like we we believe that increasing the ratio, the size ratio of the biggest bully to the next biggest bully is just necessarily good. And the more we can beat down the second biggest bully, the better it will be. And I think that's that's fine if you really, really think that the biggest bully also has your best interests at heart and all the other bullies don't. But I I don't actually think that's true. So I think um I think the consumer welfare standard is actually a better standard, but you should also think of a sort of net present consumer welfare over time where you just accept that there are some businesses that are naturally prone to monopoly. They have network effects and two half-size networks are just not as valuable as the main network. And um, you should also acknowledge that those businesses will attract a lot of capital and that if they have monopolies that are quasi-natural and quasi-artificial, there's just a huge amount of potential energy in breaking down the artificial part and forcing them to only have the the natural part of the natural monopoly. Um, I think maybe another thing would be just looking at, uh, like letting, keeping track of how aggressive each big monopolist is at disrupting other monopolists and letting them alone if they're doing a decent job of disrupting one another rather than trying to accelerate and sort of out-strategize all of them and maybe accidentally do something that's really beneficial to one of them because the the nth order impact of what you're doing was not obvious. Hey, everybody. 
Eric here with a word from our sponsors. Real quick, what's the easiest choice you can make? Taking the window instead of the middle seat, outsourcing business tasks that you absolutely hate. What about selling with Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Whether you're selling security systems or marketing memory modules, Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. I've used it in the past at the companies I've founded, and when we launch merch here at Turpentine, Shopify will be our go-to. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And Shopify helps you sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. With Shopify Magic, whip up captivating content that converts from blog posts to product descriptions. Generate instant FAQ answers. Pick the perfect email send time. Plus, Shopify Magic is free for every Shopify seller. Businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash moment of zen. Go to shopify.com slash moment of zen now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash moment of zen. I want to segue to another topic uh, that we touched on last week a little bit, but let's touch on it in a different way, which is higher education. So uh, you wrote a bit about how higher education should be financed. My outsider understanding is that there's a little bit of a cartel going on where uh, demand is restricted um, or sorry, uh, supply is restricted in the sense of it's hard to start a new university. They're, they're, you know, they're, you have to get a, a, accredited and part of who determines the accreditation is the existing um, you know, universities or adjacent uh, players. And then demand is subsidized. Um, and so by, by the government, basically making it easier to go to college. So it's, it's very difficult to compete uh, with, with, with current universities. Um, so is that the right way of thinking about it? Is, is, do we have a cartel currently? And um, what is, how do you think about how higher education is financed today? What are the problems with it? Uh, how should it be financed? Yeah, on the cartel point, universities are probably another category where you actually do have some natural monopoly characteristics. So if you think of someone 150 years ago who is smart, they know they're smart, they want to continue to learn in some domain, like they're going to go to one of a handful of schools if they can. And the if they can thing gets really hard if you're talking about just a random, randomly selected American. You know, first of all, um, you 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 want this randomly selected American to be a guy that really opens up a lot of opportunities and, you know, should be a white guy, a Christian guy, like these these all give them way more opportunities. But even even that, like even if you assume if you take the the elements of the system that were actually pretty pretty meritocratic and were just based on can you can you perform at the acceptable level or not, like if if there's a handful of places that a really smart ambitious person who wants to advance themselves intellectually should go, they go to those places. And now those places are even better places for the other smart people who really want to advance themselves intellectually to go. So you have a, a natural network effect um, from that. You have like the agglomeration effect of putting a lot of smart people together and having them all work on advancing their frontier of knowledge has these really disproportionate effects that, that, that shows up in a lot of different places. Um, startups and academia, um, even government projects sometimes um, more, more so historically than today, but has happened. 
So um, that's hard to disrupt. And then the brand name becomes really valuable because the schools, once they are the place to go, they can start being really selective. Um, in fact, they can sort of mean themselves into being what they were. Like Harvard, Harvard sort of caught up to its historic reputation in, I would say, like in the middle of the 20th century when they started using actual standardized aptitude tests and um, eliminated quotas and um, started becoming just more academically rigorous and also... Um, the European universities were a bit more out of the picture at that point, and you had a lot of European academics who came to America. So just had a lot of ways that the schools could actually become become the intellectual elite. I think Harvard has been synonymous with um, American intellectual elite for a long time, but just um, was not incredibly challenging to get into Harvard historically, um, you know, until, again, like 19... 19 well, there was a there was a process, and so they started getting more more rigorous in the twenties and thirties, and then had some backsliding, and then you had you know most most young men being involved in the war effort either on the front or um, if they weren't, then they were probably working working on something war related. So it became a lot harder for Harvard to have normal normal admissions. But uh, yeah, I think I think Harvard Harvard lives up to its reputation better than it used to. Um, and that that tells you something. That tells you that if you um, if, if you didn't have the foresight to try to create this ostentatiously smart institution a really long time ago, then you have to peel off lots of really smart people from schools that have they actually do have a good intellectual climate to offer in many respects, and they already have a lot of smart people, and they already have the brand name. So you sort of have to get a lot of them at once. Like you have to kind of do this project paperclip style thing, or this operation paperclip style thing, where you try to find like the the most free thinking twenty percent of each of the good schools and get them all like give them all full ride scholarships if they all go to UATX or something, and then you get to say like this is this is the the like this school is actually academically comparable to any other Ivy like any Ivy League school, but also you know you 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 have avoided a bunch of the craziness or you you are not stuck with the negative connotations of their brand names or you have some other benefit i don't know what the other benefits would be but um it's a hard problem like it's it's been a long time since any school moved up to the the upper echelons of the rankings and when they do it it is it is pretty opportunistic so george mason is actually a good example of a school that was able to move up substantially and they basically figured out that um they are near DC and DC just over long periods, half the time Republicans are going to be in charge, half the time Democrats are going to be in charge. And so if um, if schools tend to lean left, then if you're the one right-leaning school, it's also strategically located such that you get more access to internships or exit opportunities or more into government. Like you um have to, you know, every every election cycle, there's this opportunity for your students to massively leap ahead of everyone else and um and do really well. And actually conserve like Conservatives in academia are in this really interesting situation where they do have just massively disproportionate opportunities because they are a relative minority and the jobs are closer to 50-50 apportionment within, within um, like government-ish jobs. So this is like um, people have pointed out here, if you are an ambitious law student and you're politically neutral, it's actually way better for your future to just join the Federalist Society because most of your classmates, to the extent that they have political affiliations, are more likely to be left and right. So there's just way, way more competition to become a clerk for a liberal-leaning Supreme Court justice than a conservative-leaning one. So it is. Um, I think this is like this is this is a, a an even broader meta principle, which is that anytime you have some kind of arbitrary 
arbitrary like discrepancy, discrimination, whatever, at one level of a system. At the next level, the outputs of that system, the the opposite actually tends to make sense. Where if there's like a really high barrier to entry, if you're in category A and a low barrier in category B, then of the people who actually made it through that filter, the people in category A are just going to be massively more talented on average than the people in category B. And the people in category A, if people know that, those people get more more opportunities. So anyway, long digression, but um, I would say that schools, like elite schools, are just extremely hard to disrupt, especially if you're trying to do it to the four-year credential. And yeah, if you have a system where you can't enter a new market until your competitors all say it's okay with them, that's just not a system that's going to select for a whole lot of dynamism. But that also assumes that the four-year degree is actually the product that everyone should compete to to do a better version of. And I just don't know that that's the case. I think it's like Henry Ford's faster horse thing. Um, I think that the the most meaningful disruptor of the Ivy League schools over the last over my lifetime has been Y Combinator because I, I've read about this that Y Combinator is like the if you if you try to repeatedly eighty twenty the Ivy League experience and say okay we're going to reduce the amount of time you spend and um, we're going to make it even more selective and instead of having the system where you get a better job because you went here and then you um, you donate years later. We'll just take equity in whatever it is that you do here, and um, we'll also introduce you to a bunch of people who can fund your business, um, and we'll give you advice, but the advice won't be the main thing. Like You will be picking a project. That's your coursework. You spend all of your time researching that thing. Um, they have sort of replicated a lot of what those schools do when they are doing their best, and um, because of that, there is some level of talent attrition from Ivy League schools into YC. And I think there's also some brand attrition where being able to, like people, um, it's it's try hard to put um, to put Harvard in like in parentheses after your name. Like if you if you were on LinkedIn and you put your name and then in parentheses it's like Harvard 09, that would just be this incredibly dorky thing to do. Like you're you're vaporizing most of the brand equity you got from Harvard, but putting YC22 in, you know, in the name of your company or something on LinkedIn, that is actually a really good signal. It hasn't become a try-hard signal yet. Um, even though people do ostentatiously turn down Y Combinator funding, it's still a really good brand name. It still means a lot. So they have, to the extent that the the real role of Ivy League schools is identify the most talented people, introduce all of them to one another, and then put sort of the finishing touches on their education, like make sure that they can be productive members of the workforce, and then send them out in the world and um, do so, like have them slingshot around these other major institutions like McKinsey and Bain and um, and Goldman and Morgan Stanley, et cetera. Like have them, have them pass through these really high profile institutions when they, as they make their way through the world. So YC has boiled that down and simplified it. And so now you would, if you join YC, you are still doing the networking thing. You're still doing some of the learning things where you're doing a lot more independent study and you're probably in an even higher quality network. So uh, that is that is a long-term threat to to the Ivies. I'm sure that YC wants those schools around. You know, it's it's good to it's good for those schools to still do the the finishing school element. It's good for some people to finish an entire program, other people to spend a couple semesters at one of those schools, realize that they have important things to do elsewhere, drop out, maybe go through YC. So It'll, it'll coexist with those for a while, but if you have if you have a franchise that is around this one thing, like being the best at something, and then it turns out somebody else is actually slightly better at it and has a model that is 
better at being better and better at improving itself than your model, then in the long run, it's it's just a matter of time. Like the the, the elite schools will just get gradually less elite, and there will be there will be other options. Um, there will be other alternatives. So one of the things I talked about in um, in the piece on funding higher education is that we like to fund it as this bundle where you are spending four years, ideally, although really it's more like six. And um, six years is also the cutoff where when we measure um, completion rates, we do it on a six-year basis rather than a four-year basis, and it's like 62%. So um, the actual success rate for, for like graduating from a four-year institution is a lot lower than you would think if you were just looking at the admissions rates. Um, but there, you could you could break that down into smaller components, and breaking it down into smaller components is especially good because there's always this ambiguous mix with schools, uh, with colleges, of um, how much of this is skills acquisition, how much of this is meeting peers, how much of this is cultivating a rich inner life and actually getting in touch with the the great works of the great works your civilization has produced, and maybe potentially producing some great works of your own. Um, it's it's kind of kept deliberately ambiguous because the schools want parents to feel like kids are going to get a really, really good education where good is defined in terms of total comp when they graduate. And then the students are also told that this is going to be a pretty fun time, like it's going to be the best four years of your life or six years of your life or whatever, and you can party hard. And then, uh, you know, to attract teachers, they do need to say this is we are we're doing research and we are educating the next generation and you will you will actually be able to talk like someone will fall in love with Shakespeare in your class on Shakespeare and they will always remember that class and it will always change their life forever. So different people get told a, a similar story with different emphases, but you can separate some of that stuff out. So it just doesn't have to be the case that the institution, where, like the, the organization that teaches you how a compiler works and teaches you, you know, how to, how to think, how to reason about databases and how to, how to model complex distributed systems. Like it doesn't have to be the same institution that also that where you you start first seriously thinking about Plato. Like you could have it's it's not the same people teaching those courses. Like some people will of course take different courses in different areas, but they they the schools do different things. Like they have some some component that is a liberal arts degree where it's sort of what you would spend your time on if you did not have to work for a living and just wanted to contemplate. But it's also vocational training in order to get high paying white collar jobs. Um, I think we can split those. I think those can be done by different organizations and that they mean different things to different people at different stages of their lives. You can even imagine a norm that is like you you finish high school, you have sufficient education to vote and pay your taxes and you know work some kind of basic job, whatever. Um, you, you know, you've learned how to show up on time and how to do things, do assignments by the time they're due. So you're, you're able to function in some kind of modern working environment. Now we're going to make you spend a year contemplating what your life should be about. And there is going to be reading philosophy. You're going to read novels. You're going to paint. You're going to do these things that really get you in touch with what you want to do with your life. And then once you've decided, that's when you start getting on some more professional track and start figuring out exactly how to do what it is that you actually want to do with your life. But it's also hard to come up with some prescribed order because some people are really, really driven and they've wanted to do the same thing for a long time. And if you give them that track, they will do that track and excel on that track. Other people are a little bit more impressionistic or they get into one field and realize they should be in some totally different field that is 
in some really tangential way adjacent to it. You know, they, they figure out what the actual problem they like solving is. Um, and this happens all the time where someone, you know, they're, they're in the, in some club because they think that this interest group for the club is actually their, their big thing. And then they realize the fun part for them is organizing events and making sure everything works. And then, you know, five years later, they're in sales and crushing it. And, um, they're, they're still interested in whatever thing that group was interested in, but it's, uh, it's main purpose in their life was actually to show them that, being a well-organized and gregarious person is just, it's a skill that not everybody has and it's valuable in a lot of different domains. So I think that there should be just a more more continuous titration of knowledge into people. And um, you can you can combine that with some of the current college funding system. Like I do think there is a case for subsidizing subsidizing the acquisition of knowledge that is intrinsically valuable to people that has these positive externalities in terms of how people live their lives and how they understand problems, but is not going to get you paid that much better. So yeah, there's uh, there's just not that many jobs where there's like a, a Shakespeare aficionado premium, but we're, we're in a better society if more people read Shakespeare. So yeah, there is there is probably a case for subsidizing that, but I think subsidizing that in a really decentralized way where um, there's someone who couldn't really make a good living hosting Zoom analyses of King Lear, but um, now they can. And the people who actually show up to the Zoom call are really interested and have actual thoughts on this and can relate it to their lives and are actually itching to write the essay or something. I think that that actually makes everyone better off. I think that um, just embracing the fact that attrition is high, that a lot of people don't pay attention, um, embracing that and saying these people should not actually be getting the credential. Like it should be, it should be way easier to fail out, but it should also be way more okay to fail out. Um, you should also, I think one of the measures of whether or not education policy is working is how weak is the sheepskin effect. So this is something that uh, Brian Kaplan has talked about that if you finish most of your degree and don't get your actual credential, that you lose something like half the wage premium. And that is really hard to explain from the skills acquisition perspective, where you're saying that you you learn things over time and that your education is what made you, uh, what, what makes you earn more as a college graduate from a good school than as a high school graduate. Um, if, if that were the case, there should be a pretty, pretty direct, pretty linear relationship. Um, it would be, and I've you know, never heard of any any academic program where anybody ever said that, yeah, actually half the value that I got out of this was in the last semester when finally everything clicked. And if I hadn't finished that last semester, I wouldn't have known what I was doing. No, everyone says, I learned a lot over time. There were some good courses, some bad courses. You know, there was some one-on-one course that I barely got through. And now I know that material really well. There was some higher level course that um, was totally optional, but turned out to present some really interesting ideas to me. And that's now what I do full time. Like for me, um, I had a, a, a truncated college experience. I um, just didn't feel like I was getting a lot of value out of it. So dropped out uh, of two different schools. Um, and I did have one course that was on raw codes. It was taught by a guy, Ning Wang, who'd actually co-written a book with codes. And it um, it strongly affected just how I think about economics and what models I apply. I had a lot of readings that I return to a lot when thinking about different economic issues. But um, I... I, I think that that was that was probably most of the value of uh, attending college for me and, and the friends that I made. But um, I, that that was um, I think second second half of freshman year. So um, to the extent that there was going to be some sheepskin effect, I, I missed that. But I don't. Um, it it ends up not mattering very much. There's a lot there that I want to respond to. Uh, it's a great points. F- first off, I understand the YC analogy as it relates to startups. 
But what do you think is the equivalent as it relates to lawyers and doctors and like, you know, maybe another way to put it is like, imagine your kids going to college in 10 years or whenever they're going to go to college or if they're, if they are going to go to, are they going to go to college? And what's, what's, what's an alternative look, look like? How do you think the ecosystem is going to look in, in a decade or when's it going to be like materially changed and what, what could that look like? There's not going to be a YC for, for doctors or lawyers and Part of the reason for that is that those are both cartel businesses where they do want to limit entry into the business and they can. So, you know, especially with the lawyers, like if their whole job is parsing rules and writing rules, then uh, they're going to be really good at coming up with rules that are advantageous to, to them. So um, it's it's hard to replace those, but there's there's room to to try to route around them. You know, one like I, I think I guess like uh, in general, it's good life advice for it's good life advice to really push back on 18 year olds who have an entire plan for how they will get their dream job and it can't happen until they're 25. Like you have a lot of life ahead of you at that point and a lot of changes you will go through and you, um, and it's hard to, it's hard to reverse course, you know, getting half of an MD or having a JD is, uh, is very expensive and just, uh, not, not incredibly valuable. So, um, but I think a lot of those jobs, it's just really easy to glamorize them from the outside and they're less fun on on the inside. Um, doctors and lawyers have, I think, pretty high um, divorce rates, pretty high substance abuse rates. Uh, a lot of people try to get out of those professions. They're, they're great for some people, but I think that there's it's very easy to to see a cultural narrative that is, you know, was out of date when you saw it. And then by the time you're actually doing that thing, it's that much more out of date. And when it's not, that's that's in some ways, even worse because, um, so there was in, in the, the piece that I wrote on education financing, I had the, a footnote on this that sometimes the cultural norms for a profession get established because there were, there was some group that was very idiosyncratic and someone wrote a book about them or made a movie about them or something. And that just solidified that particular group's norms and they became the norms for anyone with that job. So, um, it's, uh, a lot of people who are law aspiring law students will watch the movie The Paper Chase, where it's all about a uh, guy's complicated relationship with his just brutally demanding contracts professor. And um, there's, it's at this point, the movie's like 50 years old. So a lot of the professors have also seen it. And so they sort of know what, what the great law school professor is supposed to be like and what the great student is supposed to be like. Everyone sort of plays these roles. Um, this, this also happened with, uh, this was also revealed by, um, law enforcement wiretaps of mafiosos that they actually started using cliches from the godfather after the movie came out and they all loved the movie so it actually became the movie's stereotypes became more accurate because it got more widely accepted but if you're entering some career because you've heard about it in some context where you know exactly what it's going to be like it sounds incredibly glamorous you just have to know that to the extent that it actually meets your expectations, it's because everyone is LARPing because they they read the same thing you read or they watched the same thing you watched and they're just trying to bring it back. This is probably probably a good reason to not work in the White House, um, that everyone is just going to be pretending it's a West Wing episode and it's just going to feel so weird and dated and retro and 90s. Like, you know, if you see someone reading the Financial Times in the West Wing, you're just obligated to give them a swirly or something and tell them knock it off. Like it was it was just a TV show. The writing was good, but it shouldn't have changed your life. <laughs> so say more about what you expect your kids to do. Like what, what do you what do you predict that their higher education your kids is I guess a stand in for sort of, you know, high ambitious, smart, well parents of kids. 
<laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, I I think college college might be an option, but I I would like it to be more of a backup option for them. I would like it to be something where if they haven't actually found a worthwhile use of their time or developed meaningful talent, despite you know develop meaningful valuable talents despite having nearly two decades to do so then yes, they they can go to college and should try to go to a good school. And um, I don't know, if you if you extrapolate, then they'll be borrowing ridiculous amounts of money and it'll be insanely expensive. And who knows when the school will all burn down during a protest or something. But assuming things sort of mean revert a little bit, um, you know, it's it's still good. And it it is going to a good school is a good way to a meet a high concentration of very smart people and b meet the people who have made it their life's work to understand something that you also find interesting so you do get these really information dense conversations if you talk to someone who's literally a world leading expert on a topic you find interesting and they have you know every idea that you suggest to them they have heard about it they can tell you who came up with that idea 20 years ago and what the rebuttals were and who tried it and how it worked and how it didn't Etc. And that can be very, very valuable. But these people also have email addresses. And they, if you actually find an academic paper by on a topic you like, you read it carefully, and you have feedback that is, you know, constructive criticism, you are probably at the 99th percentile for young person engaging with their work, inclusive of the people who have a gr- who are getting graded in their class. So you you know you, you don't want to abuse their time, but in a lot of cases these people are either actually part of the public sector or you know they're nominally part of an entity that's not affiliated with the government. In practice, their existence is still government subsidized, so they are still either partially or entirely public servants. And so yeah, it's kind of like asking a cop for directions, which I guess people used to do before we all had smartphone apps. So like. It was just kind of understood that if someone is like a public sector employee, they they do sort of work for you. You shouldn't just give them random tasks, but you should assume that they their job is to be helpful. And if you can actually engage with their material in a meaningful way, then it's valuable to them too. This is what they wanted to do with their lives. So um, you can you can get a lot of those benefits without actually paying huge amounts in tuition. And so it's a it's that's another way to eighty twenty things is just. Read things by people you like, write them emails, thoughtful emails about what you read, send them the the thoughtful thing that you wrote in response to the thing that they wrote. And um, and you can you can get some fraction of that college experience without actually having to having to move, you know, having to live in a dorm or something. So yeah, my kids, um, I I I think it's it's a really bad idea to to over-optimize for some specific hypothetical future plan, but um I do emphasize to them that this, you know, the, the schooling stuff, it is, it's optional and the better they're doing in life, the less, the more it is just a purely optional thing. So if, if they, um, I, I would imagine some of them will actually go to school. Hopefully not all of them, hopefully not all of them will finish. Um, and hopefully it will be because the opportunity cost of going to, you know, the, the opportunity cost of, Getting that degree from Stanford or MIT or Harvard or whatever is simply simply too high compared to the next best, you know, to the slightly better options they have, and so they uh, they go do something else. Yeah, it's we've been talking about how higher education, you know, fails uh, fails kids um, in many ways, but also K through twelve, it should not be no, uh, you know, it should not be uh, forgotten. Also, um, you know, is very punishing. Um, do you is is your thought to K through twelve that we should just have much more? 
competition, i.e. much more privatization, and that, thus we'd have more innovation there because um, it feels like it's, we're very from the optimal, you know, sort of solution for kids. Yeah, definitely. I think we should, um, you know, you could have like a sort of universal basic school of, it, you know, some somewhere that is commutable from where you are. There is some school that will teach your kids the approximate basics, but that should just be, it should be one option among many. I think that um, vouchers for all is probably optimal. And yes, people will go to, some people will send their kids to bad schools or to schools that are fanatical on some religious or ideological axis. But um, there are just a lot of really, really, really absurdly bad schools within the public school system. Like we don't actually, it's not like we have a really good solution to the the inability to teach seventh grade or second grade math. Like we actually have plenty of schools that are failing to do that already. And then saying that we have to protect those parents from sending their kids to any alternative to that whatsoever is just insane to me. Um, I, I think that this um, this would be bad for, for teachers' unions, but I find teachers' unions extremely disingenuous when they talk about um, political issues. I think that the most egregious thing to me is just they, in the public discourse on teacher pay, it is like an accepted standard thing that teachers teachers' unions will quote salaries and not benefits. But teachers have extremely good benefits. They have incredible job security. They're just like... Like New York had this literal room where you could go if you were so dysfunctional. There was that the best thing for the entire school system was to keep you somewhere where you could be supervised and kept away from students and you'd earn full pay. You just weren't allowed to do anything productive in the room. Like that, um, the fact that that existed instead of just you, you messed up and, you know, slugged a student because they were rude to you. And so you just instantly lose your job. Um, that seems bad. Um, I think people who have really good pensions and who omit the pension from their their calculation of their stated income, um, I think the, the penalty for that should just be zeroing out the pension. Like, if it's not worth anything to you, I'll take it. It's worth something to me. Um, I actually think that, yeah, th- periodically threatening to zero out teachers' pensions would be um, a useful political tool. Like, and it's, you know, that is, um, that's not like an anti-teacher sentiment. To the extent that it's an anti-teacher sentiment, that's only the case if teachers are making inconceivably more than they otherwise could doing, doing the same work in a more competitive market, which, um, it is empirically true, um, that if you, so teachers are paid less, again, emitting benefits for some bizarre reason. They're paid less than other people with bachelor's degrees, but, um, average standardized test scores for people entering schools and majoring in education are pretty much high school graduate level, um, like slightly above, but it's um it is like the least the least academically challenging thing you can do to get what is still technically considered a bachelor's degree. So um it is true they are paid less than other bachelor's degree recipients, but it's also much easier to get that bachelor's degree than others. Um it is also true that when teachers switch jobs, they do tend to earn less money. So teaching does pay better than other jobs with a similar set of skills. So um it it like they would be worse off, but I think anytime you have a politically powerful constituency that um, monopolizes the provision of something a lot of people find valuable and then theoretic, like periodically just threatens to take it away from everybody unless they get more money, like you wouldn't tolerate that at some other business. You wouldn't be like, well, the gas, the oil and gas union has decided that um, we we don't like oil executives enough. And so they're raising the price of gas 50%. And if you don't like it, then you can't buy gas at 85% of gas stations. Like that would be completely insane. Like if if we if someone tried to do that once, we'd be like, this system is completely broken. Let's burn it all down and start with anything new, which will be significantly better. But in the case of monopolizing public education and then um, periodically 
abusing your monopoly power in order to um, extract extract more wealth from your customers, which uh, I think you know earlier in this discussion we we kind of um, didn't didn't verbalize the idea that it's actually bad to do that, but I think it is bad to do that. I think it's bad to use the law to monopolize something and then exploit your monopoly ruthlessly. But um, it does get done. And the fact that the the entities that are doing this have lots of small shareholders rather than a small number of large shareholders doesn't actually change the debit loss calculation at all. It just means that the the um, the benefits that are left over after you account for that debit loss are distributed more evenly. But I think index funds, by that argument, index funds and um, mass adoption of 401k should also make us more tolerant of monopolies in other areas of life. So yeah, if you... Uh, if you support teachers' unions, you should also support disbanding the FTC and allowing allowing Microsoft and Google and Facebook and Amazon to merge into one big, beautiful tech conglomerate that controls everything. Like the circle. Um, it, it is ironic that um, you know in, in June 2020, uh, you know after George Floyd, there was a lot of sort of scrutiny around poli- police unions. People sort of discovered that hey, this you know prevents accountability and it's harder to fire. But people didn't make the same jump as it relates to teachers unions. Yeah, to be fair, teachers unions are are involved in fewer fatal shootings. So like I, I could see, you know, fewer people making that extrapolation. But yeah, in general, the, the idea of public sector unions is actually just kind of crazy. Like again, it's we're gonna legally monopolize something and then we're going to have a single vendor who provides the critical input that makes this thing work. And then the critical vendor is going to periodically just jack up prices and, you know, reduce the quality of its work output, and there's nothing we can do. Like it feels like a mistake you'd make exactly once, and then you'd be like, "Who who could possibly have thought this was a good idea? This is obviously a really terrible idea," and then we'd never do it again. But yeah, those police unions, like I'm sure at some point they served a purpose, but it really seems like you know if you if you have a union where the whole purpose is to protect the worst of the people in your profession, and that is like disproportionately you know, it's disproportionately valuable to whoever is actually actually a really violent cop who abuses their authority on all the time. They're going to get a whole lot more out of the union than someone who is really nice, really helpful, and just likes stopping crime. Um, so yeah, it seems like if you have a system like that, then it's going to select for the worst people to join it. And um, it's just going to get continuously worse forever. <laughs> um, speaking of monopolies, and maybe we'll gear towards closing on this. Um, I, I think it's fair to say that universities have largely, there's like a political ideological monopoly you know, I think conservatives are less than 10% of sort of professors or maybe even less than 5% or it, it, on sort of, you know, premier universities. It's a very small percentage that's been decreasing significantly uh, over the past like, few decades. Um, do you, to what extent is that just a natural outcome versus to what extent is that sort of, you know, artificially engendered somehow? And, and do you expect, how could that change? Do you expect that to change? On average, you should just expect schools to, like, you should expect people who teach for a living to be more progressive than the rest of the population. There's, I've, I've advanced this in a couple of places, the, the class warfare theory of ideology, where conservatives want, like the what conservatives want is like a good life for someone who wants to have a normal job, get married, have a normal number of kids, go to church, et cetera. But to argue for that, you need some cohort of people who, instead of doing that, are going to write books and have glamorous TV jobs and live in big cities and participate in all these big debates and won't get married until they're 35, will have 1.2 children, and we'll probably send those children to an elite school, just like the elite school that they went to. Um, so they end up 
the conservative intellectuals end up looking a lot more like progressives. They have very blue state lifestyles and disproportionately live in blue cities. And then the the converse of that is for to realize a progressive vision of, you know, we're going to have healthcare, you know, free healthcare for all and universal education and a really high minimum wage and no pollution, et cetera. Like you need to spend a ton of money to do that, which means you need to have a ton of people who are just going to quietly work, pay their taxes, be a net contributor to the social safety net, i.e. they are going to comply, comply with laws, um, not, not cause trouble, not have, you know, not, not have lifestyles that lead to significant medical expenses. So you basically need a majority of your citizens to have fairly conservative personal values in order to afford the progressive vision of this very broad, effective welfare state. So both sides actually need someone who acts as if they're on the other side and who is naturally aligned with the other side in order for their whole system to work. And so, yeah, it's just... If um, you know if you are if you are a conservative who wants to have this fairly conventional conservative lifestyle, it's just a whole lot harder to do it if you are teaching at Stanford for a living. You probably, if you really value that lifestyle, at some point you will leave academia, get a job in industry, and be able to afford that lifestyle. And you're no longer molding the impressionable minds of the next generation. Now, the the saving grace for conservatives here is that people um, people get really conservative when they get mugged. They get really conservative when they look at their first paycheck and look at the gross and look at the net and then ask themselves, like, am I actually getting my money's worth? And then uh, as their pay goes up, they're like, wow, I'm really not getting my money's worth. This sucks. So um, people do tend to get more conservative as they age. So um, it doesn't, doesn't matter a ton necessarily. I think where it does get tricky is if you have cohorts of young people who go straight from good schools into positions of influence. And there's always this debate over, do congressional staffers wield just unfathomable influence where the person who's typing up the bill is actually more important than the senator? And I don't think that's true, but it is true that they can definitely tilt things in a particular direction and they can choose, they have a lot of control over what information gets to the person they're working for and then what gets done on behalf of that person. So, and and one level, it's good. Like you, you do want these ambitious, high energy people working as early as possible in positions of authority. It's just, it does turn out that um, as they get more and more progressive, that just means that you have a lot of people executing things for the government who are much, much more to the left than the person on whose behalf they're executing them for, whether it's the median voter, even the median voter who elected their, their particular person. So that that does have a distorting effect. Of course, you know, as I mentioned earlier, what it also means is that someone who is conservative and wants to work in DC politics, periodically they just have, you know, a huge number of really good job opportunities and then it goes away. It's just way less competition for them. But um that's sort of, you know, nice nice redistribution to conservatives, but not enough redistribution for those conservatives to be able to afford, you know, a largish family in Washington DC. So you sort of need people to cycle out work in industry, become independently wealthy, and then go back to working for the government. And if there's like a 20-year gap that you spend actually making your fortune before you can be part of the political process, then that just messes up things too. But it's it's hard to optimize. It's uh, I, And I think the other thing is, um, it is it's getting harder for schools to be well, it's getting harder for the the more uniform political views to actually take effect because there has been just this gradual divergence on what is what is a cutting edge left of center view versus what are what do mainstream people in this country actually think? And 
at some point, if your institution is left and getting more and more left, it actually starts to become so left that it's irrelevant. And you, whatever you do end up persuading kids is true, just gets lapped off as like, well, that's, that's what they're saying now. Who knows what they'll be saying a year from now? But either way, let's just, let's just ignore it. And meanwhile, it is a lot easier to get um, independent education of highly variable quality, of course, but an independent education online, um, lots of lots of old books available on Google Books, lots of fun blogs you can read. So um, you know, if, you're, if your professor is very left-wing and you don't like it and you feel like their views are shallow and just don't make any sense, like you can you can log on and um, read all sorts of uh, all sorts of countervailing viewpoints, and you'd often find that those viewpoints because they don't have the sort of monopoly economics of the school. Like if someone is teaching poli sci one hundred and one, you don't really have an option to go to a different uh, a different teacher. But um, if they're competing online, competing for attention, and competing to to not get dunked on, then there is this harsher selection effect for being really good or at least really punchy and. Um, it can be very annoying to be the, the token conservative in a very liberal group or the token liberal in a very conservative group, but it does tend to sharpen your views pretty quickly and tell you on what points the other side has actually pretty good arguments, on what point they, uh, they're wrong and don't know it, and on what points they're actually wrong, but you can tell they all sort of realize that this is kind of crazy and they, they wish the equilibrium were not, and they all had to say X is true when they know X is not true. Um, this is, of course, a completely bipartisan phenomenon. Um, Donald Trump is like, the living embodiment of um, lo- very large cohort of Republicans really wish they didn't have to say Donald Trump is just like the greatest, greatest leader this country has ever had. But they really feel like if they if they say that, some of people will roll their eyes and continue to vote Republican. But some people will find the Trumpiest possible person who could primary them and vote for that guy instead. And the usual result of that is actually a Democratic selected. So for the good of the party, they have to they have to say certain things they don't really believe at all about Donald Trump. And on the left, there's um, there's plenty of that with with other things where they probably wish they didn't have to say it. They they hope it becomes less salient over time, but for now they're stuck with it. It's interesting. Uh, yeah, my my thought is that if 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 someone is focused on making universities more ideologically pluralistic, it's less uh, best to compete head on in the way that UATX is, and more best to compete adjacently in terms of like the Teal Fellowship, for example, is not a career step back for anybody. It's it's a career advancement. Whereas UATX relative to Stanford feels like a step back. And so they're selecting on like sort of free speech or, tr- uh, you know, desire for truth. And that doesn't necessarily win in the marketplace. Whereas like, you know, directly on career, you you could then become, you know, more conservative as a benefit. Yeah, there is. It's, it's, I think, another another sort of um, cult like class trader model here where um, conservatives, because they if they're starting something new, they can make it more selective by just making it really, really small. So instead of trying to replicate Harvard, you try to get 1% of the size of the student body of Harvard. And then you also get to say, if you're if you're interested in something with a slightly higher acceptance rate, consider any elite school whatsoever. And um, it's, you know, it, you get a you get a nice one too there. And the thing is that that really only works if you're losing. Um, as soon as your side starts winning, then you're either you're less selective or you're pushing, you know, successfully pushing some kind of weird higher education affirmative action for conservatives. And I just, I don't think that works. Like, I think the conservatives who are willing to be affirmative action in that way are in some really deep sense betraying the conservative norms about meritocracy. So they won't be good conservatives. Um, and there's that phenomenon where a lot of media publications, they'll have their token conservative who seems to agree with the target audience of that publication on everything. They just get to say periodically, by the way, I am still conservative. Um, 
this this has happened with a few publications where they they hire someone and um it's uh, it's very inoffensive for the readers because this person their their shtick is they're nominally conservative but really on any on any high salience hot button issue they they're willing willing to bravely tell you know new york times readers that actually the median new york times reader is completely right about this and they're looking at what they're talking about Totally. Let's uh, let, let's wrap on that. Um, this has been a great uh, overview on antitrust and uh, higher education. A great deep dive. Uh, Burn, uh, always a pleasure. Till next time. Always. All right. Next time. Thanks for listening to The Riff. Please go follow and subscribe. Give us five stars and check out Burn's excellent newsletter, The Diff, if you haven't already. 